Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. You can't read the label when you're inside the jar. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Mike Maddock. Mike is an entrepreneur, inventor, writer, keynote speaker, and an idea monkey. He is the CEO and founding partner of Maddock Douglas, an internationally recognized innovation consulting firm. Mike has founded six successful businesses. He's a longtime Forbes contributor and the co-author of four books, Free the Idea Monkey, Brand New, Flirting with the Uninterested, and Plan D, Lessons for the World's Most Successful Disruptors. Plan D was released in February of 2019. Mike and I talk about his journey as a creative and entrepreneur. We explore some of his lessons and insights regarding innovation. We discuss why innovation is harder for organizations now than it was 10 years ago, and we dig into the connection between strong brands and innovative organizations, as well as the importance of insight-driven innovation. It was great having Mike on the podcast. I thank him for his time and insights. I hope you enjoy the episode. Mike, uh Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, uh, for our listeners, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Mike Maddock. I'm an entrepreneur. I went to that great school in Ames, Iowa State University, studied design, um, among other things, and started my first business when I was 16. Since I've started six, I've written a bunch of books about innovation. I have two boys. Uh, a beautiful bride, and um, I think the greatest superhero power in the world is curiosity. Right on, thanks. So do you mind telling me uh, just a little bit of background, kind of your journey to design and then ultimately into your kind of uh, fascination with innovation? Sure, I, I, uh, was, I was a doodler, um, <clears throat> excuse me, my I went to parochial school and to stay awake and stay out of trouble, I doodled constantly. It didn't work out. I would do caricatures of nuns and it didn't end up too well. Um, and in college, I also had a, a cartoon strip in the Iowa State Daily. Um, so I always liked art. I, I always thought I would be some kind of an artist. As I said, I studied design at uh, Iowa State and just two years after I graduated, I had a job as an art director and I was actually given the job or took the job as an editorial cartoonist for the Pioneer Press. So the only reason my, my boss talked me out of it, he offered to pay me a lot more money to stay. And uh, truth be told, I was crazy about this young lady I was working with and I hadn't sealed the deal yet. So I stayed. But for a moment in time, I was almost an editorial cartoonist. Instead, I started a uh, advertising marketing firm. Um, so that, that's how, that's, that's the creative side. The, the reason um, I'm an entrepreneur has more to do with the people that I worked with. I, I, I always had jobs and I worked for some amazing entrepreneurs. So I got to see how they uh, fell for, failed forward and kept going. Thanks. And so you do a lot of speaking on innovation uh, and you write for Forbes and you have uh, a handful of books as well that I want to dig into. Uh, which came uh, first on the writing side? Were you writing for Forbes or, or, or did you get your first book out before you were doing a regular piece with Forbes? No, I wrote, I, um, I wrote for Bloomberg for a while um, and then I started writing for Forbes and I wrote, actually, here's a hack for you. If you want to write a book, it's like eating a side of beef. It's impossible. It's, it's daunting to think about sitting down and eating a side of beef at once. It's one bite at a time. So books are like that. So I started writing articles about things that I cared about around innovation and entrepreneurship. And those articles became uh, paragraphs, which became chapters, which became books. So you know, writing uh, thoughts and piecing them together as a book is a lot easier than sitting down and trying to write a book all at once. Thanks. And uh, do you prefer speaking or writing? 
I've always, I like speaking because I tend to get paid to speak and I used to get detentions for it. So <laughs> the, the irony is really wonderful. And, and it's something, as you can tell, I'm a talker yeah. and a storyteller. So I really enjoy being in front of people and, um, you know, telling stories about smarter people than I am and what the lessons I've learned and trying to help them out. So I want to go back to your parochial school uh, statement that you were you were doodling then. You were ahead of your time, right? Because now now more evidence is showing that people that are drawing and doodling have better recall on what was going on around them than just taking <laughs> take, linear notes. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I um, my mother uh, always she was a teacher for a very short time, and she always encouraged me. I, there's a there's this one thing that happened. There was. Um, in fifth grade and I had a teacher named Sister Helen and first day of school she calls out she's going down the roll call and I'm like this is awesome it's my moment to shine and she gets I'm waiting for her to get to the M she gets to M and she's like George Maddock and my my name is George Michael Maddock but I I go by Mike because my dad's name is George so it was confusing at home so I was always Mike and she knew it and I knew she knew it and so I shut up and she got louder and angrier and finally she walked down the aisle and she got in my face and she I remember she smelled kind of like Sanka and Listerine and she's like George Maddock and I was like and I said my name is Mike Maddock and she goes your name is George and you will answer that and that was it I was done talking so she dragged me down the hallway to another nun sister Nancy Fisher uh, God rest her soul. And there was this moment in time where she said, what's going on here, Helen? And this young man refuses to answer his name, blah, blah, blah. And she said, what's your name? And I said, it's Mike Maddock. And I was, you know, through tears, I was all yeah. choked up. And she said, she said, I think I see the problem here. And she turned to Sister Helen and said, Helen, you will call this young man Mike from now on. Do you understand me? And that the lesson there was you can win a battle and lose a war because I got called Mike, but I'll tell you what, fifth grade doodling saved me. <laughs> that was, yeah, yeah out, out, out of the gate might, might not have been the best for relationship building. So I guess the, the other lesson is I'll answer to anything now, man. If you want to call me George, <laughs> Mike, Jackass, whatever it is, I'm there for you. <laughs> So uh, digging in on your books a little bit, uh, latest one was uh, Plan D. Uh, and one of my favorite kind of phrases around that is shift happens. Uh, That's right. Or, or sometimes it sounds like the F is silent, right? But uh, <laughs> so what, what prompted you to, to get the idea of Plan D out there? Why is that so important for businesses today? So Plan D is about business disruptors. And my uh, business for the last... 29 years has been an innovation consulting firm. And so lucky us, we get to be in rooms with people that blow shift up for the good of the whole. And these are people that either they just see the world differently, um, they want to change things dramatically, whatever. They, they, they have this superhero power that they go to. It's kind of a go-to punch that allows them to break things better. And they do it again and again. They do it in their relationships and in, in their jobs, et cetera. And they're brewing people. Um, disruptors. So I started to take notes about the superhero powers that I noticed them having. And I, and I wrote a book about it. So each chapter is a story about uh, a disruptor, the lesson, and then the practice, uh, the disruptive practice. And the, my hope is that people can recognize that in themselves or use some of those practices to, to make the world a better place. Thanks. Why, from your perspective, doing consulting for 29 years in innovation, why is innovation hard for organizations? So there's a, the, the first book we wrote was called Brand New, Solving the Innovation Paradox. The innovation paradox is the harder you try to innovate, the harder, the worse you get at it. That is quantitatively true. We're, or corporations are 20% worse at innovation now than they were in 2012. Um, we, we did research on it and so did our friends at Accenture. So it's crazy. So the reason it, there's lots of reasons. Um, but one reason is because organizations are perfectly engineered to kill any idea that threatens their legacy products or services. So, which is a good thing. If you own a company and you hire well, 
that means you have people that can come in today and do what they did yesterday just a little bit better. But it also means that they're going to aggressively attack like antibodies in a, in a human being, anything that looks like it's a threat. And, and disruption, uh, by definition, is threatening. You know, it, it makes people nervous. It challenges the status quo, it, the, the current business model. I mean, so that's why, that's one reason why it's hard. The other reason, another reason why it's hard is because, um, I know Matt, you've heard me say you can't read the label when you're sitting inside the jar. Right, yeah, I love that. That's, there's an expertise trap. The longer you've been working on a challenge, the more you know, the more you know what worked, you know what you can afford, you know what's legal, you know why Harry got fired, you know what the boss wants, you know, you know, you know, you know, and the more you know, the more of an expert you are, but that means you can't see possibility when it walks right in front of you. So your expertise gets in the way. Thanks. Um... Yeah, question for you too, because your your first book, kind of brand new for me, it's also really a nod to brands and the connection between brand and innovation. But can you speak to that that strong connection between brand and innovation? Sure. Uh, all a good brand is is a promise kept to the right people. So if you, if I did a Venn drop, uh, diagram, because I have to, because I'm a consultant, so we all do. Uh, <laughs> The innovation, and then there'll be a two by two matrix later. Yeah, that's that's coming next. And <laughs> slide three. Everybody, just imagine three circles, won't you? The top circle. Um, so innovation is the synchronized intersection of those three circles. The insight, a problem worthy of solving, the idea, and we need to be agnostic. It could be a new product, service, business model, doesn't matter. It solves that problem, and finally, the experience that makes people go oh my gosh, you listen to me and I'll buy it or you know, I'll embrace it or use it. So if you think about that, brands are the same way. The, a great brand understands the needs of their consumers or customers and finds unique ways to answer those needs, um, ideas, um, in an experience that makes them love you more deeply and attracts the right people. So they're very similar. My, my uh, schooling and uh, you know, I, I cut my teeth in brand and moved into innovation because I was an idea monkey and people wanted me to be in brainstorms. I mean, that's really how, how we got into the innovation game. Um, but it all started with branding. Thanks. Uh, so digging in a little bit on why innovation is hard for organizations and kind of that expertise almost creating blinders, right? Because a lot of it is, to me, it's like continuous improvement. We'll keep working on what we have, but it's hard to see other things. Or like you said, it's hard to read the label when you're in the jar. What do you think the biggest hurdles are for clients uh, working with a company like yours? Because they, they recognize they have enough of a problem, right? That they need help. Uh, but from my experience, and maybe I'm projecting, and maybe this will turn into a therapy session, but what am I... <laughs> One on. on the on the on the on the I feel like with a new client, I feel like I'm spending most of my time not getting fired. Right? It's like it's hard for them to see how this will play out, both brand and innovation. And and then once they get through, they can see it. But I'm kind of curious from your perspective, what are some of those hurdles that that clients are facing, or make it make it difficult uh, early on to to start a new innovative uh, project? Well. Um, you, you said two by two, so I'll give you one. Um, I, I won't draw two by two, but, I, but, I, but if we were together, I would show you two by two that, that takes innovation and divides it up into four different quadrants. And I think that the challenge is when people hear innovation, they hear different things. If you're, if you're a really great operator, to you, innovation is a, a, a slight tweak to the business model or the pricing model or the delivery model that is measured in margin or um, you know things that they're typical to businesses. We're more profitable, we gain some market share, cost of sales went down, whatever. And that is definitely innovation. That's called evolutionary innovation. It takes a certain type of measurement and a certain type of team to do it. That team that, that you have they can do evolutionary innovation and they should. Um, the next one is, you know, top left quadrant and two by two is, you know, we know someone needs it, but we don't know how to do it. We weren't built to do that. We call that differentiation. That's a different type of innovation. It's a different team and it's a different 
measurement instrument to see if you're being successful. Top right quadrant is we don't know how to do it and we don't even know if anybody wants it. That's that's disruptive. That's how you get put out of business. It's it's a it's that's the danger zone. A lot of companies when they want to be innovative, they go put a whole bunch of chips in that like let's blow everything up and they 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 go out of business. Um, and then finally, what entrepreneurs do, <clears throat> I have an idea, but I'm not sure if anybody wants it. It's called fast fail. The, the thing is, making sure that your company understands the different types of innovation and most importantly, how to measure their progress and success. But unless that framework is put together and people universally understand it, what happens is that companies just go to profit. And so anything that doesn't uh, that doesn't, you know, result in some near-term profit or market gain is deemed a failure. And so you wake up and all you're doing is incremental innovation because you're measuring it wrong. Thank you. Yeah, because I, I think too, like the almost a maturity in in an organization where a lot of what they're done, you know, doing is almost like going back to like Six Sigma days, right? It's how can they reduce, uh, how can they improve quality incrementally? How can they reduce error? But it's just squeezing a little bit of efficiency, but they're mostly successful, right? And, <laughs> and to your point, so it, it, it's hard to look at something that, that we're not even sure if this is gonna be successful because we have to test it first. And that sounds expensive. It's, it's especially hard, Matt, when, when you're under pressure. So the best time, the best time to be uh, answering the question, should we pivot profit or punt, is when you're doing really well. You know, when you're, when you're, you got all kinds of money in the bank and you're just killing it. And, you know, you look at, um, but you don't do like, so that, so since we're in Iowa here, um, the analogy is like planting seeds versus harvest time. During harvest time, you're, you're too busy harvesting those profits that you're doing great. You're rolling in it. Why would you think about planting seeds? But the best innovators have four different fields and they're planting, harvesting, fertilizing all at the same time. Because when one crop is doing well, the other one won't. And there are seasons of business. And right now we're in a season, we're in a drought or a hurricane or something. we're in 2020. I don't know. It's Armageddon, baby. Yeah, we, so, had an, we had an inland hurricane two weeks ago. I know. You're, and there's another one on its way. I don't know if you looked at the news. Anyway, so, so when un, in, under pressure and fear, what happens is that people go to their go-to punch. When you say to a team that's worried about losing their job or staying in business, now it's time to innovate. You know what they're going to do? They're going to do what they did yesterday even more today. And what happens is, ironically, if you have a competitor that is in the business of reinventing your business, it's going to accelerate your demise because your, all your resources are now going into sustaining an old business model. And it's a natural, um, it's, it's natural. By the way, the opposite's true as well. So I'm, a, I'm an idea monkey. What happens under pressure is I reinvent. And you know, during harvest time, I'm like, let's reinvent. And it's <laughs> maddening because you should be harvesting. So there's right. a balance there for, for my team and people that have worked with me. There, there, there's a balance that, that uh, great organizations know how to strike around uh, reinvention. Yeah, that's uh, for me, both like combining uh, design and innovation is how much context matters and then optimizing for that context. That's where I get... I, I find it uh, in, in some organizations really struggling because like you said, this, this is what I've always done. And mm -hmm. if I'm stressed, I'm going to just retreat to that. I'm just going to try to keep my head down and just do more of that. Uh, right. and, and that may be good in a certain context, but where, where, where do you balance those out? And so that's why I really appreciate kind of your, your approach to and your, your two by two matrix and kind of almost a, a balanced innovation portfolio. How, how should you kind of mitigate that risk? Your, your company did uh, some really interesting research to uh, kind of in, in COVID looking at uh, trust. Uh, do you care to talk about uh, that or any of the uh, unique findings uh, yeah, so, for, for trusted um, advisors? For sure. So, we, so most of our uh, clients call themselves trusted advisors. We work in a lot of highly regulated businesses, 
uh, like uh, insurance and financial services and real estate, et cetera. And um, we had a hunch that with the COVID, you know, nothing accelerates innovation like a crisis. Um, you can create a crisis or a crisis comes to you, but things that were already happening happen faster. Um, and we thought nothing would be the same as far as trust goes. So we did a, well, a prediction market, uh, a bunch of work, but it, it culminated in a prediction market where we made nine bold predictions about the future of trust. And for your listeners, a prediction market is uh, kind of like when you go to the state fair and there's a giant jar of jelly beans. If you're the first person to guess the number of jelly beans, you're probably going to be wrong. But if you're the thousandth person to guess those jelly beans and you get to look at the notes, the cheat sheet of all 999 people that came before you, you're going to be right or much more right. The prediction market is like that. Wall Street's a prediction market. Um, a gambling book is a prediction market. It's where you're betting your own money based on what you think an outcome is going to be, but you get to look at all the data to make that decision and share it with everyone in the market. So we made nine bold predictions about the future of trust, and some of them are pretty stunning. Um, I could I could read you a prediction or two, but give me a second to get them up because I, I wouldn't yeah. want to mess it up. Please stand by. And we'll need it in the form of a question. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I've noticed lately that Zoom has been crashing computers. So if I crash, I'm sorry. Um, one prediction had to do with the um, platforms. So uh, I'll read you the prediction and I'll tell you the story. So the prediction was in the future, all advisors will choose which platform they want to work with rather than which company they want to sell for. So we were just talking about brands. Right. Imagine, imagine picking, picking your new place of work based on the types of computers they have. I know designers used to do that. Do you have good Macs? I only want to work in a Mac shop. I'm dating myself. But there was a time when the technology had changed so dramatically, but a lot of companies hadn't kept up with it that talent would be attracted to technology. So we asked that in the future, all advisors will choose which platform they want to work with rather than which company they want to sell for. The crowd agreed. The crowd said that was 67% likely to happen within 3.9 years. But what's more important is that the experts agreed. We did a second prediction market with trusted advisors. And the trusted advisors said 88% likely to happen because it's already happening. So trusted advisors are picking companies based on the technology and right behind them were millennials who were 80% bullish because they behave the same way. So it, a way to think about this is um, Tony Stark, uh, the, the Iron Man series. You've got Robert Downey Jr. And he's handsome, he's rich, he's smart, he's killing it. He looks like a lot of the trusted advisors I know, the guys you see at the country club, you know, they're driving the fancy car and they're, doing, they're killing it. Um, so he's doing really well, but when he puts on his vibranium suit, yeah. now he's a superhero. And our thought was that robots weren't going to replace advisors, but robots or platforms, technology could make them into superheroes. And this is already happening. If you think about, um, you know, can, consumer behavior, there are drivers that are picking Uber or Lyft based on the technology. We do the same thing. We might pick Trivago uh, versus TripAdvisor based on the technology. And that leads us to find the advisor that's gonna help us further. So that this, is, this wave is already happening, but it, it, it begs the question, you know, what platform are you using if you're an advisor? Who are you partnering with? What should that do? Real quick, years ago, we worked with a company called Invest Tools that later changed their name to Thinkorswim. When we started working with them, they had eight employees. When we finished working with them, it was hundreds. We were doing all kinds of research, asking the question, you know, it was an investment brochure, website, uh, educational te team, and eventually software that let you do research and then 
um, the question was church versus state. Should we be able to transact once we do the research? Should I be able to buy a stock? And it was always no, no, no until it was yes. And then TD Ameritrade purchased them for $600 million. Now, if you watch TD Ameritrade today, you'll see the bearded wonder on TV commercials, this, this actor. Yeah. And he's walking his clients around his, his you know, pool room, apparently. And they're going through the Thinkorswim platform on an iPad. And he's like, hey, look, you know, yeah, you can do your own things. You're, yeah, you can, you can kind of look through this and be smart. Yeah. Our thesis was they were actually recruiting advisors, not consumers. And that's where that prediction came from. So TD Ameritrade is using a platform to attract advisors um, as well as consumers. That was a lot for one prediction. So careful what you wish for. Yeah, that, no, thank you. And, and thanks for the, the detail and context on that because I, I, I really, really appreciate that prediction market approach. Uh, switching gears a little bit now, uh, for you as a creative, uh, I, one of the things I like to talk to folks is uh, stuck and getting unstuck. Do you ever feel stuck? And, and may, maybe, maybe you're Tony Stark and no. Uh, or it's act, it's the, it's the middle act and you, you are a little stuck, but do you ever feel stuck as a creative and how do you get unstuck? Uh, I feel stuck all the time. Um, I think life is a constant battle of unstuckedness. Um, I, I, I will tell you that the most difficult time for me is about two or three in the morning when I wake up and my subconscious is taking the wheel and is, you know, telling me stories about doom and destruction and all the things that are good. And it's because I'm not in action. Um, I, I have a number of practices around gratefulness, around, uh, you know, I use a lot of language like I, about the creator mindset, being really clear on the outcome that I want. I think the three most important questions are, what's the outcome you want? What stands in your way? And who do you know that's done this before? If, if you can, if you hear yourself complaining about something, we all do, um, that means that you're, that a commitment that you have is not being met. And so that to being aware of what that commitment is or what you're trying to make happen is the, is the antidote. So when I feel, when I hear myself complaining, I stop and I ask, okay, 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 damn it. What do I want? What do I want to make happen? So as long as I can get the, I can answer that question, I can get myself unstuck because as soon as I can see that, then I can make a list of things I need to do, what's the next step, and I'm off to the races. It's where you're not really sure that it takes the deeper work. Yeah. You know, yeah, I don't know what I want. I like that a lot too, in general, just <clears throat> tying it back to innovation, to what you, but ha sometimes some good frameworks just to, to help make sense of chaos, right? So then you can kind of calm yourself. And then like you said, even making a list is taking action, which at least for me, sometimes calms the brain a little bit as well. Uh, what advice might you have for uh, folks uh, wanting to make a career in innovation? So if for, for context and maybe laziness on my part, I'm I'm teaching a leading innovation class to upper upper level undergrads. If you were talking to uh, students today about a career in innovation, what advice might you have for them? Um, I think that I think I, I think I, the greatest superhero power is curiosity. The most the greatest innovations come from solving the biggest challenges or the most important challenges. I think ideas are easy and they're dangerous because anybody, everybody thinks they can have ideas. Indeed, everyone can. Um, some are really good. Some aren't that good, but you only get so many uh, days on the, on the planet and you might as well spend your energy and time solving problems that are worthwhile to solve. And so I think that understanding research understanding how to be curious and to be really open-minded about um, things that are ready to be changed and need to be changed is it gives you a head start on people that are just having ideas and most curriculums uh, that I've seen like let's have an I let's have a, a hackathon let's you know and they start with ideas and, and I, I just don't think that's where you should start I think it should be about 
let's be curious about the world. What's not working? What could be better? And then have ideas about it. Right. And I know in the past, we've talked about the difference between insight versus idea to focus innovation. Do you mind talking about the power of insight versus just ideas? Great. So um, insight's a big word. Everyone's got to, so, so just like having a definition for innovation, I think it's important to have a definition or, or a formula for insight. So the formula is I statement of fact, because reason to believe, but, um, so I statement of fact, because reason to believe, but tension, what, this is why it's not happening. Most companies, when they think of insights, they, they leave off that, but I call it the sexy, but right. it's the most important part of the statement. So for example, um, I, I like to eat healthy because it's good for me. Okay. But. Then why don't you? <laughs> What's the but? What's keeping you from doing it? Um, we had the, uh, my favorite case study to talk about is we worked with P&G many years ago. Dennis yelled at me because I was, I kept coming up with these whitening teeth ideas in front of him. And he's like, dude, you, do you know what business I'm in? You're a dentist? That's right. That means I'm a doctor. That means I could give a rat's butt about white teeth. You know why? Because it's a false proxy. You have gingivitis. You're about, you're, you have gum disease. I care about gingivitis. So I don't want to hear one more idea about white teeth ever. You got it? You know, it was a horrible moment for me. And I remember going to our client and going, man, I think he doesn't like me. You know, like he, I felt we'd failed our client, but we hadn't because we were working on an insight statement. The insight statement is, I want white teeth because it makes me look younger and feel healthier. But brushing alone doesn't make my teeth white enough. So we've all had the experience that you go to the dentist and they torture you for 40 minutes. And then you look in the mirror and your, your gums are, might be bleeding, but your teeth look exactly the same. You're like, what the hell was that? There's no, there's no evidence. And so the, the, you know, maybe the most critical question in business is what business are we really in? That doctor, that dentist thought he was in the uh, gum disease business and his clients thought he was in the smile business. And, and that led to a $4 billion opportunity that the, the dentist didn't want to solve at the time. Today, it's an $11 billion industry. But I want my teeth, I, I want white teeth because it makes me look younger, but brushing doesn't do it. I was in there going, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Because I was solving for an insight statement that he did not believe in. Yeah. Um, $4 billion worth of people did. So that's why an insight is so important. Gives you a target. Thanks. Uh, yeah, one of the things I really like about that, and this might have been one of the most insightful things I received from uh, uh, one of my favorite teachers in, when I was in high school was my economics teacher. And I grew up in Rockford, Illinois. So, uh, you know, it was uh, talking about need for innovation. There was, a, there was a city that, you know, it was producing, it was manufacturing, it was furniture. And you, you, could, you could leave high school, go to the factory and have a job for 40 years and retire, right? It was the, the middle-class dream, but in the seventies as, as jobs start to drift away, they don't come back. And my economics teacher, I remember him talking about bobby pins and he talked about a Rockford factory that uh, wanted to be the best bobby pin factory in the world. That was what they were going to do. And by God, they did it. And they still went out of business. Right? And, and I remember him saying that they wanted to be the leaders in the bobby pin. And he said, imagine if they just thought about hair care, because why are people using bobby pins? And for me, that was, that was like that first time to look at. And I still, you know, I, I didn't have the language for it, but that, that idea of what, what business are we really in? Are we in hair care? Are we, are we helping women with styling? Because then they might've been looking at hairspray. They might've been looking at uh, gel or other products that are, are, are based on that. But when, when women started really cutting their hair shorter, didn't really need bobby pins, even the best bobby pin company in the world couldn't stay in business. Yeah, that, that's, it's, um, it was uh, Theodore Levitt, who was a Harvard Business School professor in 1967 that coined the term marketing myopia. And what marketing myopia is, is you, because you build a factory that knows how to make bobby pins and you hire craftsmen that know how to make bobby pins and machinists that know how to fix bobby pin machines, 
you wake up one day and say, we're in the bobby pin business. And that's marketing myopia. And everyone does it. If you think about it, um, wh why, isn't, why isn't BP or Shell the leader in solar, wind? Why aren't they the leader? In, they're in the energy business, but they, they think they're in the petro business. And that's interesting because one of the, one of the um, predictions we made was called, we call it the horizontal land grab. And essentially we wanted, we thought that, that trusted advisors would start to go horizontal and offer services that weren't really in their wheelhouse. Like you, you're an accountant. Why would you offer, um, you know, afterlife planning or, uh, or uh, uh, social capital management, you know? Well, it's because you're trusted. It's also because under pressure, that's a horizontal land grab. Going vertical is mark is marketing myopia, and in 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 the it used to be uh, great entrepreneurs like um, uh, Carnegie. He was all about vertical integration. You know, if you had a piece of steel, he dug it out of the ground. His people smelled it. His railroads, you know, he did everything yeah, yeah. that was vertical. Elon Musk is going horizontal. He, he, you know, he, he's about uh, using, I don't even know, I, I'd have to think about what business he's in, but the, that's the point. What business is Google in? What business is Apple in? It's hard, really innovative companies are, don't have marketing myopia. They go horizontal. Yeah, it was, and it, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago that it was still like business, their, their big driver was control the vertical supply chain, right? And squeeze efficiency out, control the vertical Right. But as soon as that, that last piece of that vertical is not needed. You're, yeah. And those are, the people to be, you, you, it's very astute happy because those people are running companies now. So under pressure, they went to B school and they learned about vertical integration. So under pressure, they go vertical. But what we found was that uh, I have a buddy named Rick Jamison. And I, we, the reason we did, made this prediction was because we were talking to these advisors who we picked because they were aggressive and entrepreneurial. We kept hearing, yeah, I'm starting a new business. I started another new business. Like under pressure, like, what the hell are you doing? There's a global pandemic. Yeah, I just started two businesses. Rick Jameson, in two months, stood up a $500 million ventilator company. And the reason he was able to do that, he's a brake pad manufacturer, was because he said, you know, my real business is negotiating contracts and work and dealing with government regulation. I'm a CPA, I know how to do that. I've been doing it for years. That's why I run a good, sure, I know how to manufacture break pads, but I know how to get the deals done. So he saw this as an opportunity to, to negotiate a, a, another deal. And he had FDA approval in two months, a half a billion dollar company in two months, that because he went horizontal. Right. And, you know, if I had told you a year ago that this brake pad guy was going to get into the ventilator business, what would you have said? You're like, you're out of your mind. Yeah, I would have yeah. said that. But he went horizontal. So it's a fun process to go through a pivot session. I, I, I think, too, it's fun even looking at, like, Apple's catalog. Or you said Google. Like, they started out, they were Yahoo's search engine. Right. Right. Uh, I, I, I remember, I remember, you know, what was this 25 years ago when they went off on their own and I really thought to myself, Oh, I hope they make it. That's funny. Well, I mean, Nintendo was a playing card company. Nokia was a bike. I mean, if you go back to these, these legendary companies and, you know, they were uh, manufactured rubber, you know, and, not, and now they're the leading computer software company in the world. They, they're, look at IBM, keeps iterating itself, you know, it, it's amazing. But you, so, so when you think about the pivot, what business should I be in, it's, it's, it's right in the middle. Operators think about um, how, can we, how can we squeeze what we already have, the assets and systems, and that's important. Um, but there are other things like what, what's our reputation? What are growing in lucrative markets? What does our network look like? What's our talent and key staff look like? What are our core values? In the middle of all that is your business. That's, that's the business you deserve to be in. And that's, that's gold, baby. If you can get your team thinking that way, man, it's, it's, the world is your oyster. 
So what do you, what do you think it takes for some, some business leaders to, to make that pivot? I mean, to switch their, their own mental model. Well, it either takes a disaster, an emergency, or an enlightenment. I mean, it takes investment to say, you know what, you know what we see it a lot? We see it a lot with uh, uh, generational businesses where you've got a really successful uh, father or mother, their kids are coming to their business, they're fine, but the kids are like, really? This, this is so stodgy. Well, what do you want to do? Dad, come on, dad or mom. Don't, you ever heard of social media? Everything's changing now. Okay. Well, I want you to be happy and I want to listen to you and I'm fine, but I'd like this company to survive. That's where that, it happens a lot right there. Um, or you, you have enough market pressure that you bring in <laughs> the maverick disruptor who will have their job for two and three quarter years right. if they're lucky, but they will blow shift up yep. and they will, they will shake things up or um, more often in more seasoned companies, they'll, they'll hire what I call an orchestrator who's been with the company for uh, more than two decades is typically a woman is highly trusted by the organization um, knows where all the bodies are buried and is incredibly good at managing fear and ego and it's a slower burn but it but it tends to work i mean it tends to uh shift companies in the right direction thanks yeah one uh one hypothesis i have to, in, on why they they struggle is i see a lot of leadership where they are close to retirement and do you really want to take on oh big change right it's like <laughs> You know, if I just make it, I just need three, five more years, I'll retire, and then I don't have to worry about this. So why would I change anything? But like you said, like with a family business, when there's this emotional legacy. That's right. Uh, you know, I want this to survive. Or may, maybe if I was a partner, and I will still see revenue after I'm done, you know, then that might be a little different. But I see a lot of people, I think they're almost just checked out because why why take on any any risk or change to my day to day when I'm almost, I just need this flight to land. Yeah, and, and legacy matters, and you don't if you if you're if you're proud, you, you don't want to, your last act to be blowing things up, you know, and it didn't work, and it's it's dangerous. So I, I like it when companies hire innovation leads from outside their industry because they're not inside the jar, you know. They, yeah. they 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 can be objective about things. They don't know um, what is it? Mark Twain said that it's not what you know that that gets you in trouble it's what that you believe is true that just ain't so and um that's so bringing people in from outside your industry to run innovation often helps you see um things that you're missing i, I moved into a house just out of college um we wound up buying it so we lived in it about five six years until our first son was born i remember i'd remodeled this whole house like every inch of it i thought and then someone came over to our house and said, hey, dude, what's with the uh, orange shag rug carpet pole in the middle of your living room? I'm like, oh, my God, there's an orange shag carpet pole in the middle of my living room. And I couldn't see it anymore. It's like water to a fish. I'd lived with this gross pole for so long that it was invisible to me. It took someone coming to my living room going, what the hell is with the pole? And I think uh, companies are a lot like that. They're just so used to being successful doing things a certain way that they no longer even consider the possibility that if they started over today, it would look completely different. Now, how about you running an innovation company? It kind of, I'm curious for you, uh, what it, are, there, are there times you feel like you can't read your label when you're in the jar? Is it, is it difficult running an innovation company? Yeah, it, it is. Um, and here's the big mistake that we made. One of many, by the way. But... So you, you have to be careful about where you're getting your data. So by way of example, the, in this prediction market we did, um, this is the first study we've done where we had four distinctly different reactions from different generations. The boomers didn't agree with the X, the millennials didn't agree with the, uh, the boomers. They, everyone wanted something different. And one of our um, advisors, that we used in our second prediction market is um, 
is managing 13 billion in, in assets. He'll be at 50 billion by the end of this year and 300 billion uh, within five years. He's acquiring. And I asked him, well, how many clients do you have right now? He goes about a thousand. And I said, then what's their average age? He goes probably 65, 66. Well, when millennials want something completely different than boomers, you're in trouble if all your clients are boomers because the data you're getting every day is reaffirming your own bias. That right. might be completely different than what the next generation wants. So I'd said earlier that we started working with a lot of regulated industries, very conservative industries. And so our data was based on um, people that were very conservative they wanted things very slowly. They wanted it very thorough. So we built systems that were incredibly rigorous. Like, you know, I can tell you, I can get in front of a board of directors and get them to give you a hundred million dollars. Cause I know how, I should say, we know how, because I need smart people around to do that. Right. Um, cause, cause I'm not smart enough to do that. But, but you know, you we can make a case for why you write a hundred million dollar check. But to do that, you have to be pretty damn thorough. Well, the world doesn't want, the world wants fast. So we're building things that take three months and people are like, three months? I need it in three days. No, 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 no. All of our clients require three months. So that was a mistake. So, so being careful about who you're getting your data from, um, you know, and being willing to brush off your knees, get up and try again. <laughs> right. Uh, so on the collaboration side, when uh, kind of the idea of uh, the, the idea monkey and freeing the idea monkey, but you also talk about kind of the, the, uh, is it the ring master or the ring leader, ring leader. Ring leader as, yeah. as a counterpart. Can you talk about that kind of that balance for, for teams or, sure. or organizations? <laughs> That's a good segue. I'm actually, um, in the process of uh, starting up something new that goes right to that question. So I'm like, super excited about it. So <clears throat> there, there is this uh, intense and uh, important tension between divergent and convergent thinkers on a team. And most companies are started by what I call idea monkeys visionary leaders that have an idea and they, they use the power of storytelling and vision and uh, enthusiasm to get people to go, yeah, that's a pretty good idea, I'm in. Um, but as they mature, the, most companies are taken over by operators that know how to take that idea and scale it, an idea at scale. They're two different talents. They're both incredibly important. Um, and they go in opposite directions under pressure, so there's a lot of conflict. So a good way to think about it is Walt Disney wanted to create the happiest place on earth and um, did, but it was really his brother Roy who did it because his brother Roy was an operator and would listen to his Walt and figure out how to get these crazy ideas on the ground. And they famously fought like cats and dogs. So um, I, my thesis is that balanced teams win, but most teams aren't balanced because they, um, they are intentionally or unintentionally mirror the, the founder. And so many businesses wake up, we did, and you test everyone on the leadership team and they all kind of come back looking like the founder. And if everybody on the leadership team or most people on the leadership team are idea monkeys, you're really good at having ideas and you're really bad at executing if most of the people are operators, you're really bad at having ideas and you're really good at executing an idea that you have. So as you said, eventually you need both. And, um, and the best companies are balanced so that they're doing both all the time um, intentionally. So there are, there are actually six, I'm giving you a hint of where I'm going. There are actually six archetypes um, uh, including the visionary and the operator. So there's four more that I think are super uh, important to that leadership team. Awesome. Uh, so uh, we talked about advice a little bit. That was more for, uh, you know, maybe more uh, students looking at innovation careers. But uh, usually I, I end uh, each episode kind of talking about advice. And I'm, I'm stealing from Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist. And he says, when we give advice, we're just talking to our younger self. Yeah. What was some advice you wish you would have had uh, early in your career? 
or even in fifth grade before your your name battle? <laughs> well, I, I think that um, I've had amazing partners through life. I wish that I had known better how to pick a good partner and um, not in terms of big hearts, big minds, but just uh, intentionally finding partners that were different and opposite and skilled at things that I didn't know how to do. And when there are plenty of things I don't know how to do, um, but finding that balance. I also think someday I'll, I'll look back and wish I hadn't worried so much, you know, and because it's, it robs you of the moment and all we have is this moment really. So, but it's, it's hard. The reason I laughed and paused is because I yeah. think the bullet shouldn't forget the gun, right? I mean, all those things that you wish you didn't do are the things that made you successful. Right? So it's, yeah. it's a really yeah. tricky question. Well, Mike, it was an absolute pleasure to have you here on the on the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, all the things you have on deck. Thanks, brother. I appreciate you. And thanks for uh, doing the good work you're doing at the second best school in Iowa. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, we had a, we had a, uh, I have two stories, uh, Cyclone Hawkeye related. I, we won a very large project for a very large insurance company um, a, a number of years ago. And I knew I had not met the CEO of that company, but I knew he was a Hawkeye. So once we had been awarded the contract, I was walked in by the president of the company to the CEO. And, uh, you know, five, five minutes into the meeting, I'm like, yeah, um, there is one issue. And he said, what's that? And I go, uh, I need to tell you where I went to school. He goes, oh, no, you're not a cyclone. And, and I go, that's right. He goes, I don't think we can work together. My brother's a cyclone. The best thing about Iowa State and Iowa is everybody has a cousin, a brother, an uncle on it that went to the other school. And it's such a rich, wonderful rivalry. Um, similar story, I was in the boardroom of uh, Boeing and I knew that the then CEO was a cyclone. And so five minutes in, I'm like, so anyway, I was in Ames, Iowa. He went, wait a minute. Ames, Iowa? I go, that's right, baby. And I, I jumped up and high-fived the CEO of Boeing across the table, much to the horror of the staff. They're all like, what just happened? So there's, there's such a great, such a great state and um, great, just, I love Iowa. So lucky you. I'm, I'm, maybe I'll wind up there. Right on. If Thanks the cyclones so are looking for an innovation uh, instructor, Look me up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll let them know. Okay. All right. Thanks so much, Mike. Have a great day. Take care. Yeah.